Hello and welcome to Season 3, Episode 4 of God in Film, the podcast where a Christian and an atheist dive into the best that cinema has to offer and see if we can find any parallels with gospel or any other Bible stories. I'm TV critic and sexiest man according to Mrs. Goff, Giles Goff. And I'm RS teacher and evil genius, Natalie Austin. And you might have noticed that Phil is sounding a lot more feminine than usual. To give you an idea how we normally do this show, I pick a film and get Phil to watch it ahead of time. But due to this series focusing on TV, that is a much greater time commitment. So in order to give them a bit of a breather, we've got a guest co-host for this episode. Natalie has guested on the Matrix and Hacksaw Ridge episodes. Nat, do you want to tell people a little <laughs> bit about yourself? Uh, I'm Natalie, uh, and aside from my full-time job as one of Giles's best friends, trust me, it is a full-time job, uh, I'm a teacher. Uh, while my degree is in psychology, I do teach both psychology and religious studies up to A-level. So I am also the co-owner of Geek Retreats Kidderminster. So should you find yourself in Kidderminster, God have mercy on your soul, but also feel Feel free to pop by for a milkshake. Kidderminster, the Paris of the West Midlands, you mean? How would people not go there? <laughs> and today we're going to be looking at The Handmaid's Tale, the dystopian drama based on the book by Margaret Atwood. We'll be looking at the biblical justification for the ceremony and why religion causes so many wars, or at least why people think they do. Now, due to the subject matter of the show, we're probably going to be discussing rape and sexual assault. So if this might be a bit of a tough listen, then that is totally okay. Just skip this app and we'll see you next week. But now... Let's kick off with <gasps> Nat's Facts. The Handmaid's Tale is an American dystopian television series based on the 1985 novel of the same name by Canadian author Margaret Atwood. The series was commissioned by the streaming service Hulu in 2016 and so far has run for four seasons and has been commissioned for a fifth. It was created by Bruce Miller, who is also an executive producer. Atwood herself serves as a consulting producer, giving feedback on some of the areas where the series expands upon or modernises the book. It stars Elizabeth Moss as the main character, June Osborne, and a cast of supporting actors including Joseph Fiennes, Yvonne Strahovski, Anne Dowd, Max Minghella and Samira Wiley. The plot features a dystopia following a second American civil war wherein a totalitarian society subjects fertile women called handmaids to childbearing slavery. Uh, Margaret Atwood, the author of the uh, the book The Handmaid's Tale, makes a cameo as an aunt in episode one. She is the one who slaps off Fred when she's reluctant to join in the group shaming circle. Uh, another fact, one of these facts where you think it's it's the the probabilities of this happening are just very strange. But uh, um, in an April 2018 interview with the Salon website, Amanda, mm -hmm. I'm going to guess Brugel or Brugel, I'm not quite sure on the pronunciation there, but Amanda Brugel, who, who plays Rita, who's one of the mm -hmm. Marthas in the show, said that in uh, the book, The Handmaid's Tale changed her life long before she won a role in the show. She was assigned the novel as a 15-year-old high school student and subsequently wrote some short stories based on it. Later, she wrote a university application thesis on the novel and received a full scholarship on that basis. Bruegel said that the main focus of that university application essay was Rita, the character that she now plays on the show <laughs> how awesome is that <laughs> that is pretty awesome that is definitely really yeah. cool i like the idea that uh, that margaret atwood signed up and signed off on on the show as long as she's like yeah just as long as i get to slap someone bring yeah. me in 
you know, I'll slap the lead, I'll slap the extras, I'll slap the, the catering, I don't care, just let me hit somebody. <laughs> All about the slapping, that woman, isn't she? Hasn't Elizabeth Moss directed some of the episodes Yeah, as Elizabeth well? Moss directed sure some of the, the season four episodes. I believe she directed the testimony episode, where she's sort of giving... Oh, uh, when giving, she goes in the court. Mm, in the, the sort of, like, the yeah. intestinal sort of crimes court. It's interesting, yeah. when you look at that series, uh, apparently... Offred coming to Canada and getting free, a part of that was facilitated by COVID and uh, and the need for social distancing. Mm. So if you look at the way that court is spread out, you can see that she stood it on a podium on her own. You mm. can see if you look where Commander Waterford and Mrs. Waterford are, Mrs. Waterford is sitting quite a fair bit back from from Joseph Fine. So you like it's, <laughs> there's some obvious social distancing going on there, and it's just but um, it works. It works oh, for yeah. that scene. It works, <laughs> and, it, and it, it sort of gives you this sort of real sense of coldness between them. It's fascinating. Absolutely. Uh, I have two more facts. Go for it. Joseph Fiennes, who plays Commander Fred Waterford, strongly urged the writers against his character having any redemptive character arc, since he felt that it would be untrue to the character's true evil and cowardly nature. Fiennes admitted that it was a challenge to play such a weak and distasteful character for so long, but he found the role to be artistically satisfying in the context of the show. Fiennes also claimed that it took him months to grow out his beard to play Commander Fred Waterford, and the first thing he does after wrapping a season is to shave it off in his trailer as a way of getting out of character it's an amazing beard i'm yeah, a big fan beard. of facial hair myself it is epic and you could imagine yeah. it taking months to grow do you know that's fascinating and it never i never noticed that he doesn't have any kind of redemptive arc and i don't think he has any kind of redeeming features either no he starts evil and ends evil and you kind of mm. you're all right with that as a, a viewer, I find. Yeah, I think so. Also, again, talking about trends in in Hollywood, there's a thing where if a if a villain becomes popular with an audience, there's there becomes a need to sort of redeem them in some way, shape, or form, you know. Mm. But I think there there can be too many redemptions for too many people. Mm. That's why it's quite nice to have a character like Fred Waterford just be completely unredemptive Absolutely. and bad to the point where he's so far gone. He he isn't even capable of reflecting on the bad things that he's done. Up to the end, he's still justifying his bad actions. And that's that, that's infuriating because <clears throat> he's he's gaslighting her right up to the end, isn't he? You know. And mm. I have one more fact. Go for it. In the source novel, no last name is provided to the reader for the character of Nick. In the TV adaptation, however, his name is Nick Blaine. This means that his name is one letter away from the name of the main character in the classic movie Casablanca, Rick Blaine, played by Humphrey Bogart. In Casablanca, Rick initially claims that he is politically neutral and would stick his neck out for no one, but he eventually sides with the resistance to help both an anti-fascist cause and a woman he cares about. This has clear parallels to Nick's journey in The Handmaid's Tale. Yeah, I'm very conflicted about about Nick because he does help June. That's that's incontrovertible. Mm. How much he helps the the resistance as a whole, I think, is is much more up for debate. You know, he manages mm. to yeah. to hold on to his position the entire time. I think he definitely falls in love with June, and I think he definitely helps June. Mm. Whether that makes him a resistance fighter or not is probably a discussion for for another time. Mm. But yep, yeah, so those are my facts. Nat's facts. Thanks for those, Natalie. Those were absolutely awesome. Now, I think I got a little bit of a coup on this next guest. I heard her talking on another podcast, and I basically emailed her and said, you're great. Do you want to be on ours? And she was like, yeah, all right. So I'll let her introduce herself. Uh, I'm Liz Shercliffe. I'm a priest in the Church of England. 
I'm director of studies, so I train, I'm involved in training people for ministry. And I'm the author of four books at the moment. The first one is Preaching Women, Gender, Power and the Pulpit. And one that's recently come out is called Out of the Shadows, which is about women in the Bible and their stories and how they've been. Uh, that It's not about how they've been silenced, but they are silenced and we've sort of talk about them, give people ideas for how we might read those stories, uh, what we might pray or say about them. And there's a prayer at the end of every chapter. The next one that's going to come out is for preachers, which will come out in September. That is a very comprehensive introduction. Liz, thank you so much for joining us. Let's jump straight in with about as difficult a question as I could think of. In what ways has scripture been used to subjugate women? It is a difficult question, that one. And uh, I thought for a long time about it. I've divided it into three things that I think happen. The first one is that we read the Bible uncritically. Instead of appreciating that it's written from a male perspective, and normally that commentaries are written from a male perspective as well, uh, we don't. We just accept that that's the standard, that it's supposed to be objective. So, um, for example, one of the women in my book is Sarah, who is Abraham's wife. We quite often forget that she also was part of God's promise. And so we focus on the bad things that she did, like she laughed when God came to tell Abraham that they were going to have a child and she treated Hagar badly. Um, But we forget that she too was an abused woman. So that was my first point, that we read the Bible uncritically. My next one was we misread the women's stories. We just don't take account of all the details that are there. So a well-known story would be the woman who anoints Jesus's feet at Simon the Pharisee's house. Mm. And because she's referred to as a sinner, quite often it's assumed that she was a prostitute. Yeah. But the same word for sinner is used of Peter three chapters earlier. And no one ever thought that Peter might be a prostitute. He's always been a fisherman as far as I can read. Um, and there's various other bits of that story. Like we assume she found out Jesus was in the house and came into the house uninvited. And yet Jesus clearly says, from the time I came in, she hasn't stopped kissing me. So she was there before Jesus was. There seems to be a desperate rush sometimes to put sexual sin onto women, uh, particularly I think in the New Testament when they're when they're interacting with Jesus. We, we, you go, you kind of go straight into the like literally the Madonna whore dichotomy with this stuff very quickly, don't you? Yeah, you do absolutely. Yeah, yeah. There's um, a cathedral in Spain that we visited one time, and it was really obvious because there were two statues on the pillar. One was virginal white skin dressed in blue and the other was dressed so that she virtually had fishnet tights on (laughs) wasn't quite fishnet tights but the first look at it you thought yeah and you knew who they were without reading the labels it was so stark yeah moving on from that the other issue is like power imbalance so for example the early church had some really prominent women leaders but they tend to then disappear so when and why were women barred from leadership in the church? I think some of it is the reasons I've just said. For example, Phoebe, we know in Romans, Paul refers to as diakonos, which whenever Paul uses that word elsewhere of of men, it's always minister. But for Phoebe, it's translated as servant or server or whatever it might be. Um, but not the same power of the word. So it's deliberately used 
to undermine Phoebe's position, even though that's not what Paul does. That's fascinating. So possibly a bit of bad faith on the part of the translator. I think, yeah, there are two examples where it's used. One is the King James Version, and I think then it was probably, it can't possibly be that women lead, you know, because that was the culture of the time. So it was almost accidental. But the other translation of the Bible, and I use the word translation loosely, is is the ESV. Just for those who are not sure, what's the ESV stand for? Uh, It's the English Standard Version, Uh, which was produced after the NIV, and it was supposed to be a better translation, but actually it carried with it the preconceived ideas of the people behind it. So Mm. you've got Jim Packer was one of the people on the committee responsible for it, and Wayne Gruden was as well. And they've got this really interesting bit, again in Romans 16, where they say, salute Andronicus and Junior. And Junior is definitely a woman's name. And it says, salute Andronicus and Junior, my kinsmen. Okay, that's interesting. So they turn a woman into a man because that's their (laughs) belief. This is a, a, a recurring theme in the show, I find, that um, it gets very tricky when you've got people who taught you about Jesus and taught you to love God, and sometimes some of their own prejudices get taught along the way. And basically, a large part of the show is just unpacking what is real and what was somebody else's preconceived ideas thrown in there. Yeah, it's very tricky, isn't it? Coming back to uh, The Handmaid's Tale, which is obviously the one we're studying today, is there anything in particular in Handmaid's Tale that that stands out to you? There are two things, one of which I watched through and the other one of which made me stop watching because I just couldn't hack it. The first one is, is she called Janine, who she goes to investigate the Red Centre and she asks questions, I think, doesn't she? So there's this Janine is the one with the that ends up with having her eye removed. She gets her eye, eye removed because she's basically, uh, from my reading of it, because she's asking questions mm-hmm. about what's going on. And so um, she asks some questions about this patriarchal system and has her eye put out for yeah. it, which is extremely abusive, but... It seems to me that that's the kind of thing that continues to happen. In most wars, women are the uh, the biggest victims because even if the war is clearly against the men of a tribe or a country or whatever, raping someone's wife is seen as punishing them. Yeah. So, you know, the women are abused because of what the men want to do. But the image I just couldn't get past is is the ceremony or something. The, the, the way actual... this is set up by the man in power as a religious thing and he gets his family together and the whole household, actually, and they read the Bible and pray. And then he carries out what's basically rape on this yeah. woman who is a fertile woman and they need to impregnate her in order to continue... The society as they see it being done it just happens to women over and over again i think the the abuse and the shame but but in in the handmaid's tale it's kind of overlaid all the time that it's abusive oppressive and absolutely shaming as well yeah which seems to be the hardest. So I I didn't get past that bit. Yeah, okay. Listen, Liz, thank you so much for coming to I could listen to you talk all day. I really appreciate it. And I know a lot of our listeners are really going to love to hear your input. Do you have anything you'd like to plug? Yeah, two books. um, I think for women preachers and actually men preachers. My SCM book, Preaching Women, Gender Power in the Pulpit, which came out in 2019 with SCM. And a recent one, which I've written with Kate Bruce, called Out of the Shadows, Preach 
teaching the women of the Bible. Awesome. Listen, Liz, thank you so much for talking to us today. I really appreciate it. Thanks very much. Good to be with you. Okay, Natalie, that was Liz Shercliffe. What do you think? What an awesome woman. As someone who came to RS teaching, having not really done that much studying of the subject before, I'm very much a a self-taught RS professional. Um, It's quite intimidating to hear when someone actually knows what they're on about. It is interesting, and I think her response to The Handmaid's Tale is, is quite similar to a lot of people's in that just can't watch it because it's such a hard watch for some people. Um, so I totally understand that particular view. I mean, I, I, I love the show, but at times it is a very difficult watch. So I could understand why some people just would not want to watch it. It does feel a bit torture porn at times. Yeah, it's, mm. it's, a, bit, it's a bit hard going. Now it's time for Finding the Faith in the Film. Da, 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 da. Sorry, I know I'm not Phil, but I'll try my best. You're not Phil. You're not Phil, and don't you forget that. You could never I'll replace never him. I'll never be him, Giles. You'll never be him. He'll always live in my heart. He's not dead, guys. <laughs> that voice you heard there was one of our guests who just cannot wait to be introduced properly. We've got our Margaret Atwood expert on, uh, Claire Goff. That's an intimidating way to be introduced. <laughs> this is why I let the guests introduce themselves normally. Yeah, yeah. So, also for something dealing so strongly with female issues, it seemed to me that it would make more sense to pack as many women into this podcast as I possibly could. So, we've gone from it being 100% male to 25% male, and I think that's probably the right way to go for this episode. Claire, mm-hmm. do you want to say hi to everyone? Hello, everyone. I'm Claire. I have been on the podcast before. I'm Jazz's wife, and I'm very happy to be back. And uh, by Margaret Atwood expert, Giles means that I really like her books and have read a small number of them. <laughs> you've, saw, you've seen her live as well. I have also seen her live in conversation. Which was Ooh, I'm jealous. Of my life. Don't be jealous. It wasn't It wasn't that great. It was basically Margaret Atwood and her interviewer basically going, oh, isn't everything awful yes. for about 40 minutes? But we saw Margaret Atwood live in the flesh and that is still a very exciting experience. We did, we did, mm-hmm. we did. Okay, first up, I wanted to talk about the ceremony that is at the heart of the of the show obviously the idea is that there's been a problem with fertility globally and that gilead when it's overthrown america has brought about this handmade system where women who are still fertile are being used as effectively concubines for men in power in this sort of republic of gilead and there's a ceremony that's meant to happen every month where the commander is meant to sort of sleep with the handmaid. The wife holds the handmaid down as it happens. But before they do it, there's a Bible reading and it comes from Genesis 30 verse 3. And it's talking about Jacob, who's one of one of the sort of patriarchs of Israel. It goes uh, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob. And Jacob's other name is Israel. Jacob ends up marrying, having two wives. I don't know if you know this one. Mm-hmm. Falls in love with this girl called Rachel, who's his uncle's, who's I think is probably technically his cousin, but let's just gloss over that bit for a moment. <laughs> uh, they all married their cousins all the time. Yeah, yeah there, was, <laughs> there was less options, you know. Tinder wasn't around. You know, we did what, you know, they did what they had to. And he falls completely head over heels for, for Rachel. Uh, her dad says, okay, work for me for seven years and I'll give you Rachel. Then there's a, at the wedding, he gets him horrendously drunk, uh, gets Jacob horrendously drunk and then marries her off to Leah, who is the rougher looking sister. Um, <laughs> wow. <laughs> I'm just I'm just telling it how it is guys you know and then it's a then Jacob instead of Jacob going 
uh, with respect, this is not what we did, what we agreed. He's like, oh, well, if you definitely want Rachel, you're going to have to work for another seven years. So he ends up working 14 years to marry Rachel. She is not a great bunch of lads, quite frankly. Let's, let's put it, <laughs> that's the best way I can put it. And I'm, I'm just going to read out the uh, the section to give you a, an idea of what happens. Leah, the one he's married to that he's not really fussed with, he might not be fussed with her, but he keeps having kids with her on a pretty regular basis you know so yeah so genesis 30 when rachel saw that she was not bearing jacob any children she became jealous of her sister so she said to jacob give me children or i'll die jacob became angry with her and said am i in the place of god who has kept you from having children then she said here is bilhah my maidservant sleep with her so that she can bear children for me and that through her i too can build a family so she gave him a servant bilhah as a wife jacob slept with her and she became pregnant and bore him a son then rachel said god has vindicated me he has listened to my plea and given me a son because of this she named him down rachel's servant bilhah conceived again and bore jacob a second son then rachel said i have had a great struggle with my sister and i have won so she named him Naphtali. When Leah saw that she had stopped having children, she took her maidservant Zilpah and gave her to Jacob as a wife. Leah served Zilpah, bore Jacob's son. Then Leah said, what good fortune. So she named him Gad and it goes on and on like this. Mm. And it's this idea of just sort of giving your maidservant to your husband and that whatever child that is born to him will be yours the crucial thing that's missing from this is that at no point does God say this is a good idea. At no point did God say, oh, by the way, you should do this. This is all Rachel's idea and then Leah's idea and so on and so forth. And Jacob seems to be wildly uncritical of the entire process. And it leads to problems down the road because that's how you get the whole Joseph and his technical coat fiasco. Yeah, mm. I mean, granted, you get one really good musical out of it. So, that is yeah, true. Okay, <laughs> fair play. But this is the thing I guess I wanted to talk about is that just because it happened in the bible does not mean god approved of it and especially mm. in this time it's it's this kind of case of if you are wealthy if you have good crops or whatever then as far as people are concerned god has blessed you so if you if god has blessed you then you must be doing something right and it's mm. like that's not really how it works guys do you know what i mean to me that sort of jumped into the whole point of like scripture being misappropriated for the benefit of a ruling class mm. you know this idea of it just being there's even there's even a reference in the books about it's been edited and some bits have been taken out. Mm, yeah, definitely. Yeah, I think what uh, that's what Atwood was really trying to do. She she says that she's not anti-religion herself. She she describes herself as an agnostic. She says she just thinks that religion has often been misused in the service of totalitarianism. But she also says that doesn't mean that religion necessarily leads to totalitarianism. Mm -hmm. They've had some atheistic um, regimes as well. Don't, don't um, spoil my things down the line. Sorry, <laughs> am I treading on your toes there? Um, but yeah, that's not the point of, of the book is to be anti-religion. She says it's, you know, religion has been used as a hammer to whack people on the heads with, um, which I like, I like her turn of phrase there. Um, but it's also been and is today a sustaining set of beliefs in community that, that gets people through things. So she's not trying to say that, that you know the bible is bad or religion is bad but that it is is abused by people for the sake of power um mm -hmm. which is which is what's happening here and you can there is there is an awful lot in the bible that you can take out of context if you want to and very much use it to cause some terrible abuses which ha it, it has been used to do but it's interesting actually that in the handmaid's tale some of the protagonists kind of 
do cling to their faith or the desire for yeah. God, despite kind of the negative way God is portrayed by the regime in Gilead and things like that. Um, they still, you still sometimes see characters kind of maybe praying, or I think in the TV series, um, some of them do do mention a faith. I can't bring any examples to mind and didn't have time to rewatch the whole thing. I always remember in the, I think it's the second series when June's on the run, she's pregnant and she's on the run and she takes shelter in that um, uh, newspaper. Uh, yeah. office mm. and she she does a, basically like a religious ceremony to honor all of the people yes. there who were murdered and That's it's got it, very it, it you know very kind of a christian kind of ceremony and i'm sure she does pray for them as well mm. and so i think yeah. it is really one of the things i love about the tv show is that it's not just like, oh, religion, bad. It's mm. much more nuanced than that. I mean, I'm not a Definitely. religious person at all myself. Um, so it's, but it, it is quite nice to see that, well, actually, you know, religion is a, okay, this might be a very clumsy metaphor, but like religion's like a knife, you know, in the wrong hands, you can hurt people with it, but in the right hands, you can cook someone a lovely dinner. It's, you know, it's... Yeah. Um... Oh, I like that. <laughs> I like that. Yeah, that's really good. I'm stealing yeah. that one. Yeah, yeah, it's true. And yeah, and so, yeah, Gilead doesn't manage to completely get rid of people's personal faith, which is which is quite something, despite the this kind of, what you could call spiritual abuse that's visited on people, they still maintain their own faith. And the author kind of suggests that Gilead, Gilead isn't a true representation of Christianity because the underground resistance in the novels, for example, is heavily made up of Christian groups. Catholics are found hanging on the wall and Quakers actually help to smuggle women across borders to Canada in the Testaments. So Christians with genuine faith are depicted as those who are willing to sacrifice their lives for their beliefs. So you do get a slightly more nuanced representation. And well. also the 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 sort of the Gilead regime, they are like a very, very hardline version of Christianity, but they're not at all an inclusive one. So like a lot of their mm. victims are the wrong type of Christians. Uh, and, and of course, it's not just Christianity that does this I mean I think the elephant in the room here is what's going on in Afghanistan at the moment with the uh, mm. the, the Taliban it's exactly the same thing it's people taking the religion of Islam which you know millions billions of people all over the world follow perfectly fine um, mm. you know following the rules of you know loving people and tolerance and respect and all these things and you get some people who take passages that can be twisted in a particular way and um, that Margaret at would talked about the, um, uh, the the takeover in Iran of hardline uh, Muslim that, that sort of hardline fundamentalist Islam mm. and, and women one day being walking around wearing skirts and going off to university and then the next day when in burqas and having all their freedoms well, restricted. See- I did a little bit of looking into this, and by a little bit of looking into this, what I mean is I talked to my friend Ripon. Ripon is um, is a friend of the show. He's sort of helped us to sort of publicise it in the past. He left us a lovely review. He's also a big fundraiser for the British Heart Foundation because he'd had a heart attack himself. He is just a great bunch of lads, basically. <laughs> um, but the one of the things that, that people tend to think is that Islam is unfair to women and that it's got it baked in, you know? And... Mm. I obviously don't have to necessarily have time to sort of research that myself, but I just asked Ripon, how does the Taliban's interpretation of Islam differ from mainstream Islam? He gave me, as you would expect, a pretty comprehensive response. He said they differ in a pretty big way. But just for the basics, let's just take the idea of that Muhammad, peace be upon him, in Islam is considered the perfect man. 
So every Muslim's aim is to try and emulate him or at least look at the way he conducted himself in his lifetime so that we can have a guideline of how to conduct ourselves. Let's just take his first wife, Khadijah. She was first and foremost a businesswoman and a highly successful and affluent one at that. She was older than him too. She married him and at no point did he stop her trading or business before or after he had his revelation. She was the first person Muhammad, peace be upon him, spoke to about his revelation and she was the first convert to Islam. So just from that alone, you can see why the rest of the Muslim world is having difficulties with the Taliban and ISIS's stance on women's rights, or lack of. Also, Islam is very clear on inheritance for women, and this is a really interesting one, which did not exist pre-Islam. For example, a daughter gets half of what a son gets. That might seem harsh, but the son is expected to use his share to look after his family and his mom and dad if they're living. The daughter's inheritance is solely hers, and she doesn't owe it to anyone. Also, women are given dowries for hands in marriage. Again, the money is solely hers to do with as she pleases. She doesn't have to contribute towards the household at all with that dowry money. This is off the top of my head. There's so much more, but you can see why the Taliban's way of removing every right, every ounce of wealth from women just does not comply with Islamic doctrine. I won't pretend that other branches of Islam also have forgotten these basic rights, but it's clearly stated in the Quran and in the Hadith, that's like a how Muhammad, peace be upon him, conducted himself guide on the importance of making sure women are looked after. And then Ripon ends by saying, my stance has always been, when in doubt, read the book, and the book is pretty clear. And I absolutely loved that. I mm. thought that was fantastic. It's There are a, an awful lot of misunderstandings about Islam. Doing about uh, in GCSE RS, we were looking at polygamy um, and how the Quran does uh, permit a man to have up to four wives. Now, obviously, when you bring this up with a group of year 10 students, it's like, you know, oh my goodness, you know, what that is so unfair and everything. But I was chatting with a Muslim colleague of mine, and she said that, well, actually, it's all about protecting women because back at the, uh, the time when this, um, this was sort of first put down in writing. You know, women had no rights, very few rights. They they didn't really have much um, ability to earn their own money. And so if a woman was married and her husband died, she'd lost her form of income. And so if another man was able to and marry her, uh, he mm-hmm. could then provide for her. And she also made the point is that when Muhammad um, said this, that, you know, men could have up to, to four wives. I think it's in a Hadith rather than the in the Quran. He was kind of making the point he was saying oh you can have up to four wives so long as you can treat them all equally and you can afford to keep each of them equally and that by taking on a second wife you don't kind of um, then end up reducing the quality of, of love and attention you give to the first wife and he was basically saying of like yeah you can do it if you can do all these things which you're probably not going to be able to so you probably would best not to, to do it and just stick with the first wife um, and, and that is like many like many things things has kind of been taken out of context and uh, and used as justification for some men having many many wives like why would you want more than one wife i mean okay granted this is probably unfair because i pretty much knocked it out of the park on my wife choices on the first go but you're welcome it's tricky keeping one woman happy why would you want to multiply that the mormon church which i know is kind of there's a big debate about whether or not they count as a, a branch of no, christianity and i think i think it depends no, who you isn't. ask i think you and i might no, disagree on this <laughs> this is probably a, a conversation for another episode but nobody nobody 
else in mainstream Christianity is going, oh yeah, the Mormons, they're totally legit. <clears throat> <laughs> but like, I, I, as an outsider to Christianity, I just kind of go, well, if someone says that they're a Christian, I'm not going to argue with them but obviously they have um uh, a polygamy what i didn't realize actually is that the mormon church actually outlawed this um yeah. the and it's it's not part of the religion but there are still sort of groups that, that do it we've got a friend who uh who is comes from a mormon background mm. and we asked her about that and she was like i mean yeah there are some of them right on the fringes but mm. it's really not a, a real thing anymore mm. you know you raise an interesting point there about about from your perspective mormonism looks like a, a branch of christianity and and all that sort of thing mm. and i thought that sort of really really sort of jumped onto the idea of like how close we look to something mm. and the distinctions we can we can find with this and it's become something it's become something of an issue i think for me when christianity and religion just gets lumped in with all other religions and and uh, and the rest of it doing this promoting this podcast i hear online whenever i whenever i try and sort of put something in a group of hey guys you should totally read listen to my podcast it's really good there'll be some <laughs> guy there who'll go well actually i think religions cause so many wars in this world and i think we'd just be better off without it and like I just, dude, I just wanted you to listen to the podcast, you know? So I'm going to take that deliberate asshat approach to something right now and say, Natalie, did you know that atheism has been one of the major driving causes of genocide in the 20th century alone? That atheism is responsible for killing at least 1.2 million people during the 1930s. Is that, are you talking about uh, Maoism? I wasn't, no, actually. What can you tell me about Maoism? People often kind of lump Mao in with the sort of evil atheists because... Well, hang on. Mao is, <laughs> Mao is uh, communist, Chairman right? Mao, yeah, he was communist, which obviously awesome. is an atheistic kind of ideology. Well, there we go. Um, it's the question though is if an atheist does a bad thing is it because of the atheism just like when yeah, a Christian does a bad thing <laughs> when a it's Christian does a that. bad thing going around um, atheism things up you know well personally Obvious... I'm an atheist and I've never committed genocide that we know of <laughs> obviously guys i'm being reductive there i'm trying to point out that if you want to take things in very broad strokes nobody comes out of this particularly well every every belief system can be associated mm. with some horrendous massacres of some form or other but that's not what god's about that's not what atheism is about and it's reductive to say so again like i say it's 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 like margaret atwood has done with gilead is that you know it's people who want to do something terrible and want to make a grab for power who are mm. using whatever thing they have to hand as an excuse yeah. so you know using religion uh, as an excuse and i mean when i look at the regime in the handmaid's tale i barely even recognize it as christian mm. to be honest it doesn't look like any kind of christianity i've ever seen i don't think they even ever mentioned jesus yeah which is no. a fairly core tenet of christianity and I, think, I think that is a is a key yeah. choice by atwood that she keeps mm. she keeps jesus out of it to to, to illustrate that it's, it's very old testament mm. and it has it drifted so far from it when you read the books and when you sort of look through the watch the tv series it feels like somebody has done a control f search of their bible and just found some terms and applied it to, to things <laughs> like do you remember the um the the marthas do you know where that comes from it's uh lazarus's sister i can't remember the rest of it but i'll, save, I'll yeah. save you some thinking <laughs> so it's in luke 10 38 to 42 as jesus and his disciples were on their way he came to a village where a woman named Martha opened her home to him she had a sister called Mary who sat at the Lord's feet listening to what he said 
but Martha was distracted by all the preparations that had to be made. She came to him and asked, Lord, don't you care that my sister has left me to do the work by myself? Tell her to help me. Martha, Martha, the Lord answered, you are worried and upset about many things, but few things are needed, or indeed only one. Mary has chosen what is better, and it will not be taken away from her. We've talked about this on the podcast before, haven't we? Yeah, I was going to say, I think think I've I've mentioned this before, about how the posture that Mary takes, who sat at the Lord's feet, is actually uh, traditionally associated with a student and a rabbi. Mm. So by telling Martha to leave Mary alone and let her stay doing what she's doing, he's kind of endorsing women learning mm. <laughs> um, which is kind of the opposite of what Gilead are going for yeah <laughs> Gilead's a really good example of uh, a theocracy how would you how would you define a theocracy a, uh, I imagine the definition would be something like a form of government which takes its rules of governance from a religious source yeah it's a form of government where where religion is is ruling it. Believe it or not, we heard it mentioned in a in a sermon uh, a few months back where somebody talked about how um, heaven will be like a theocracy. It's like uh, that makes me uncomfortable. I, 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 not, I don't know if that's it. I mean, let's face it. When we think of theocracies, my brain goes straight to Star Wars, you know, and uh, and the Empire. The Emperor is is a is a Sith Lord. Sith is a is a religion, and that didn't work out well for anybody. So you know, I think like we'll we'll just take a blanket term and go theocracies are bad you guys because for government to work it has to work for everybody and it has to work on the basis that you and I have the same rights no matter whether whether you, whether we agree on things or not mm. you know interestingly um some a new word i stumbled upon yesterday when i was researching for this well i suppose it is a theocracy but we can be more specific it's actually a theonomy so a theonomy is a hypothetical christian form of government in which society is ruled by divine law so if we're talking theocracy you could have a muslim theocracy or whatever um if you're talking about Christian theocracy, then we can use the word theonomy. Uh, so there's a nice new little bit of uh, terminology. And do you know who came up with that term? I want to know so hard. If I said divine law. Oh, no, I feel like. I'm come on. Who's Guys. my boy? Who's my boy? Tommy A. Oh, Thomas Aquinas. Um, yes, Thomas Aquinas. <laughs> my boy. Pops up everywhere was, in the A level spec. I was going to embarrass myself. <laughs> My brain was shouting, don't say Sigmund Freud, don't say Sigmund Freud. I have complicated feelings about Freud. Yeah. How hot must have Sigmund Freud's mum been? <laughs> exactly. We're all thinking it. So anyway, so Margaret is... Atwood and the Handmaid's Tale, guys. <laughs> yeah. but it's, you're right about, you know, absolutely taking things in context, though, because it's, you know, it's the same with a lot of the stuff in the Bible, like some of it. I really struggle with lots of people really struggle mm-hmm. with um, especially in the Old Testament but a like like Giles says just because something's in the Bible doesn't necessarily mean God endorsed it <laughs> it's important to remember that sometimes <laughs> just because something happens if God didn't say mm, I see this and it is good you shouldn't necessarily take it as an example of how to live your life but also you you know you do have to look at it in context like you say like in the society in which they lived um, a lot of the time women were literally property and their entire purpose was was to produce children and you you do sort of have to take it in that context and and look at okay was this kind of progress for where people were at then and and that kind of thing you know but i think it all it all kind of comes down to um this idea of the bible having dual authorship i mean if you come across that 
phrase before. Talk me through that. So essentially it's um, the idea that the Bible is the word of God spoken through the words of man. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. And and you've probably heard the phrase, I think it's from Timothy, that the Bible is God-breathed. God-breathed, so yeah, yeah, inspired by rather than dictated. Yeah. Um, and yeah. so unlike, say, the Quran, which is viewed as the literal word-for-word word of God that you know it was the angel Jibril who's equivalent to the angel Gabriel, Gabriel. came yeah. to Muhammad and said right recite and then like gave Muhammad the words which he recited word for word and so the, the Quran being the literal word of God the Bible has to be viewed uh, through the lens of the culture in which it was written and there's yeah. something there's a, a, a kind of a field of uh, sort of religious uh, investigation called redaction criticism I don't know if you've ever heard of that no uh, so the, redac- the word rings a bell but I can't remember what it means <laughs> I, I could take a guess is it is it the idea of that that some things have been redacted from the Bible along the way and sort of redaction criticism it's essentially the idea that when you read the bible you have to bear in mind the historical context of the time that it was written um, Mm. and then kind of have to look through that context in order to get to what actually god is saying there Um, no i think um, that makes that makes total sense because and, and this is often the thing we come to when there's discussions about about slavery or discussions about women in the in the new testament there's no discussion in the new testament about proportional representation in voting rights or anything like that and it's because it was so light years ahead of anything they could have possibly anticipated Mm. that that's why it's not it's not touched upon you know absolutely yeah i mean the way jesus treated women and the way women were treated in the early church was actually incredibly progressive Mm -hmm. (laughs) um i mean that time it just looks backward to us looking at it from from our modern lens but yeah you have to look at it in in the light of context I had a great quote from Tom Holland, the historian, recently that said one of the earliest forerunners of communism is the early church because yes. they all uh-huh. share their things. Yeah, it strikes you to, to everyone share everything and give to give you know people that have access, give to people that that don't have enough, which is really how we should more be living. Absolutely. <laughs> trying, I think if you try and tell anyone in America, in America that, you might get a bit of a rude response. Yeah. Yeah, <laughs> Redaction criticism is a scholarly method of studying Bible texts. It views the writers as editors rather than the original authors of scripture. But yet it's this idea, it's the study of how the material is redacted or edited to reflect a particular point of view. So I Mm. teach this as part of um, looking at the birth narratives so that you've got Matthew and Luke and the differences between those um, and the idea that they're actually writing for different audiences so when Mm. the uh, the writers are deciding what to put in they also deciding what to leave out um, because obviously Luke was writing for uh, Gentiles Matthew was writing for Jews so they have different um, different views Luke much more concerned with the role of women um, and so he makes Mary the focus of his um, birth narrative whereas Matthew is much more interested uh, as most men probably were in men so he kind of puts the focus on joseph a bit more when we look at the bible and we look at women's rights i think it is important that we look at who was writing it and it was it was men and so they are going to leave out and put less emphasis on stuff that is about women just because that's you know the culture of the time absolutely and for me in some ways that kind of persuades me more of the veracity of the gospels because they're written by men you wouldn't expect them to be putting women as the first witnesses to the resurrection mm. <laughs> like if a men are writing this point. if they were making it up 
Um, in those days, women's testimony was worth extremely little. So if they were trying to invent it, they wouldn't be putting women as the first witnesses. They what would pick that? anyone else. <laughs> yeah, what's that phrase? If it wasn't for women preachers, no one would have ever heard of the resurrection. Yeah. <laughs> Is mad. there anything you, anything more you guys would like to talk about The Handmaid's Tale? Lots. One of the big things with The Handmaid's Tale that um, Margaret Atwood was very insistent on when she was writing it was that she didn't want to invent anything she wanted it to be yeah, so, nothing that happens yeah, they, in the book that hasn't happened at some point in history she sometimes really rails when people call handmaid's tale uh, science fiction and yeah. she says no it's it's speculative fiction you know yeah yeah i was going to talk briefly about the name gilead uh, the name gilead means hill of testimony um, and it is a place in the bible that's where it's taken from um so i don't know if that's sort of gilead um, holding itself up as a model, perhaps, mm. um, to other nations around it in the pompous way that it has. <laughs> yeah, I wish, it's, it always seemed like such an odd one, doesn't it? Mm. Yeah, I just I thought it'd be interesting just to um, uh, give a few examples of real-world incidents that Margaret Atwood used to, to base The Handmaid's Tale on. Do you know much about Romania and Nicolae Ceausescu um, and his policies? This... I mean, obviously I do, but just in case Claire doesn't, do you want okay. to just explain so, it for her? So for Claire, and you know, Giles, feel free to jump in and correct me. If oh, I, I get will. Anything wrong. <laughs> so um, in Romania in the uh, 1960s, um, it was uh, it was run by this dictator called Nicola Ceausescu, who I had to go and find a YouTube video of how to pronounce his name because it does not look like. Ceausescu. Um, so he had this idea, as you know, back when uh, Romania was part of, you know, the communist bloc, he believed that the best way for Romania to develop was to have lots and lots and lots and lots of babies um, and to increase the population so that uh, Romania would have, you know, lots of you know, workers and and people who could, you know, build the country up. Um, and he uh, passed laws that said that all women had to have four babies, at least, um, which, having had two, the idea of doubling that is, like, new. Um, and uh, this was all under what was called Decree 770. Um, abortion was banned, contraception was banned, and if that doesn't sound bad enough, every month women had to go to the gynaecologist and be tested to see if they were pregnant, and if they weren't pregnant then they had to kind of explain themselves, like explain why they weren't pregnant. Do you know, if I said Romanian orphans, does that yeah. ring any sort of bells? Yeah. So yeah. back in the uh, in the 80s and 90s, I mean, I remember being a kid in the 90s and seeing this on TV on like Blue Peter and stuff like this, um, mm -hmm. that you'd have these... Um, orphanages just filled with children um, because their parents were forced into having children that they couldn't afford and didn't want and um, it's absolutely awful so yeah that idea of a government forcing women into having children that they didn't want is absolutely based in reality unfortunately can you imagine if humanity just spent less time trying to tell women what to do with their bodies what else we could have done yeah, save so much time i would have my flipping moon base by now that's all i'm saying <laughs> you know i mean there are, i've got a couple of other examples um the idea of babies being born in front of crowds like when the handmaids give birth and they've got all of the uh, the wives and the other handmaids there cheering them on now claire you and I have been through this. We have both given birth. 
would you like to have a crowd of 20 or 30 people there? I mean, it felt like there was. <laughs> <laughs> there were a lot of women in that room that day, you know. But, uh, but no, it's really something I would prefer to do in private. You're, you're never more vulnerable than when yeah. you're there, legs up, bits out, another human shooting from you. Um, but yeah, yeah. <laughs> the uh, yeah, it was it was apparently a very common custom um, in the 1600s and 1700s mm. um, in uh, particularly with royal families uh, mm. that you'd have like crowds of people there to, to watch these royal women give was- birth. There was something as well about women meant to be giving birth in silence. I can't remember. If oh, like uh, Twilight Sleep. Uh, it's how the Queen gave birth to her kids. Uh, they basically yes. drug you and then you wake up and you've given birth. Um, yeah. But it's it's not as nice as it sounds. It's uh, it's like quite traumatic for the women. I cannot wait to hear the Natalie and Claire podcast. I think this is going to be absolutely fantastic. And that concludes our Finding the Faith in the Film section. Natalie, have you had a good time? I've had a wonderful time. I've had an awesome time. Thanks, Dal. Dystopian fiction is my favourite. Dystopian fiction is your jam, darling, and I've always loved that about you. I like thinking about a bleak future. Takes your mind off the bleak present. Yes, exactly. All right, listeners, thank you for joining us for this epic one. We will see you next week for Deep Space Nine. Bye! Bye! Gordon Film is hosted and created by Giles Goff and Phil Coleman with special co-host Natalie Austin. Mixing by Phil, editing by Giles. Our logo was designed by Julie Walsh, and our theme tune was composed by Rick Lee. Gordon Films is a Dask production. Please rate and review, unless it's a one-star, in which case, write your criticism on the inside of your underwear, leave the house once the commanders have left for the salvaging, and proceed through the woods to the extraction point. A Martha will meet you, and when she says, it's a particularly warm fall we're having, you respond with, yes, one could be forgiven for thinking it was a May day. She'll then get you on a boat to Canada if you can get past the checkpoints. Praise be.